Welcome to the AI Events Podcast, your front row seat to exciting scholarly debates on pressing national issues. With new episodes every week, never miss out on the conversation and stay up to date on topics important to you. To hear more, check out our other channels related to education, domestic policy, and international issues. Good afternoon. Uh, thanks for coming out and joining us today. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Hal Brands. Uh, I'm a scholar here at AAI in foreign and defense policy. But more importantly, uh, I'm here today to introduce the, the star of this afternoon's show, uh, my friend Colin Duick. Uh, so Colin uh, is a professor of uh, public policy at George Mason University. More importantly, he is one of AAI's own. He was the Gene Kirkpatrick Scholar here for a couple of years, between 2017 and 2019, during which time uh, he wrote the book that he will be talking about today. Uh, and he's still affiliated with AEI as a non-resident uh, fellow. He is uh, one of the world's leading authorities on US foreign policy in general and conservative approaches to American foreign policy in particular. I think he is one of the uh, best people out there in terms of translating the Trump foreign policy for the world and sort of helping us all make sense of it. Uh, and he's also just uh, a great guy and, and a good friend of mine. And so it's an honor to be up here with him celebrating the release uh, of this book, The Age of Iron, on conservative nationalism. So we will uh, have a chance to talk about the book, which is incredibly uh, thought-provoking, even for people who don't necessarily agree with everything uh, is in it. But I think what, what's really important about it is that it is something that's badly needed today. It's an effort to put uh, the foreign policy of the Trump administration in its proper intellectual in historical context, and it does just a wonderful job of that. So I'm sure it'll be a very rich session, and with that, I will turn it over to Colin. That's a very generous introduction. So um, what interested me in writing this book was the really ferocious criticism that the Trump administration has sustained since inauguration, the idea being that it represents a kind of frontal assault on liberal world order that these trends of populism and nationalism are, are really reminiscent of the 1930s and that this is, this is all very deeply disturbing. So what I wanted to argue in the book is um, that the American tradition of nationalism, conservative nationalism, is really the oldest American foreign policy tradition. And it's not undemocratic at all. It's, it's quite the opposite. Um, I suggest in the book that going back to the founding, there is, a, there is an American nationalist tradition that is distinctive to the United States. So it is, it is a form of civic nationalism, which has classical liberal elements. So that has both domestic and international implications. On the foreign policy side, the founders believed that they could promote a different kind of international system. Uh, if you think of the $1 bill, that creepy little eye on the top of the pyramid, that's, that's really how they talked in private as well as public. They thought it would be a new order that would, that would involve Republican, small-r Republican forms of government. So there was a kind of optimism or idealism to it. At the same time, they could be very practical in the details, uh, extremely practical. And they reserved their right to make short-term ad hoc alliances and partnerships with whoever they liked. So there was a strain of a kind of strong attachment to American national sovereignty, maintaining a free hand. That was in Washington's farewell address. And that was really the mainstream American tradition for over 100 years, well into the 20th century. In fact, for all of the expansion of American power and influence, that conservative American nationalist tradition was kind of the bipartisan tradition. 
And it was really Woodrow Wilson, I think, who, who shattered that orthodoxy and came up with something new, which we today call liberal internationalism. And we're so used to it, we think of it as the mainstream consensus, uh, and we're very worried, some of us, by the fact that it's under challenge. Um, Wilson, of course, laid out this alternative in foreign policy as well as in domestic that was progressive. He suggested that we really needed to have global, binding, universal, multilateral commitments, and that that was the way to keep the peace. He actually did not like specific military alliances. He wanted to avoid them. But that was his revolution. And it was too much, of course, in the short term. In the long term, it had tremendous impact. Um, But the way Republicans and conservatives responded to it from the very beginning was internal debate and division. So there were different factions among, for example, Senate Republicans, uh, you know, Henry Cabot Lodge on the one hand, Robert LaFollette on the other, interventionist versus non-interventionist. They did not agree on exactly what America's role in the world should be. Some Republicans wanted to be quite disengaged from international alliances. Others, like Lodge, actually wanted something like NATO. They wanted an early alliance, uh, early version of NATO, an alliance between the United States, France, and Great Britain going into the 1920s, uh, which would have been an interesting counterfactual, right? So they weren't isolationists, but what they did believe is that Wilson's vision went too far, that it was not realistic to make a universal commitment to protecting every other country in the world because you weren't going to do it. So they, they questioned the extent of Wilson's vision. So in the 20s and 30s, of course, it's the more non-interventionist conservatives that, that win the debate, and that becomes the new paradigm. Uh, Republicans continue to have these factional debates over time. In the 40s, it shifts so that conservative internationalists finally win the debate under the pressure of World War II and then the onset of Soviet communism. And those conservatives, uh, leading into figures like uh, Dwight Eisenhower, thought that it was important now for the U.S. to be engaged in the world. So the, so the, 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 the uh, dominant strain shifted, and that old non-interventionist strain went sort of underground because of the power of anti-communism. After the end of the Cold War, there were new possibilities, and it wasn't quite clear who would win that debate. Right? George W. Bush, for a while, had the support of most conservative Republicans. But during the Obama years in particular, you had that resurface again, interventionist versus non-interventionist. And what Trump did in 2015, 2016, which was so interesting and so shocking, was that he turned on its head the traditional Republican coalition. The forces that had been dominant since the 40s, really, on the Republican side at the elite level were no longer so. And he took a more hardline, unilateralist uh, tendency within the party, even more non-interventionist, and he, he put it on top. Uh, he did so rhetorically. He did so by questioning existing wars and existing commitments. He questioned that whole liberal internationalist tradition pretty energetically. He did something new, and that was obviously very controversial, and it still is. In reality, of course, his policy has been more of a mixture, a hybrid. It has elements that are still uh, continuous with previous administrations, but it has elements that are quite distinctive to him and even some elements that are non-interventionist. So that makes it all very interesting. Um, So it is correct, I think, to see the Trump phenomenon as a kind of resurgence of traditional American nationalism. And, of course, for some people this is actually very worrying. For others it's exhilarating. Right? But I think analytically it's useful to just start by looking at it. So what are we actually talking about? I mean, what's happening before we go straight to invective? Right? Let's try to understand what's happening. That's what it is. it is. It is properly understood as a resurgence of traditional American nationalism on the right, but also across the board. 
So then that leads us into some interesting questions. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about that over the next hour. But one thing I would just say to begin with is I was surprised when I looked at, there's a couple chapters in the book on the historical precedent. There's a couple on Trump. I looked at the public opinion, the distribution among conservatives. I was surprised how little public opinion had changed over the last decade. I found that actually the distribution of conservative opinion is much the same today as it was five or ten years ago, which is not necessarily what you'd expect. So Trump hasn't changed the distribution of opinion that much. What he's done is he's spoken to one half of the party, let's say the more blue-collar wing of the party, on particular on issues like trade, immigration, intervention, and he's represented those voters, as he did in the primary, voters who obviously felt frustrated or underrepresented. And there's lots to critique, but that's, that's what he's done. Uh, however, that's not to say that, that the Republican Party has suddenly switched at the level of opinion from uh, you know, being, for example anti-Russian and being pro-Russian. As a matter of fact, most Republican voters to this day say they have cold views, not warm views, of Vladimir Putin and Russia. That's just one example of, of, of a conservative opinion not really changing that much. And you can have similar conversation about trade and intervention and other matters. So for the most part, you know, Republican conservative voters to this day, when they're asked, for example, do you support NATO, say yes. And at the same time, they say, we support President Trump. And we support how he's handling NATO. So that's interesting. It sort of goes against some of the conventional ways of thinking about it. The last thing I'll say before discussion, uh, having said that, there is a long-term shift at the base of the party toward white working class voters becoming more and more important over time. Trump is both encouraging that, but he's also an effect of it, and you can track it over time. And that constituency is probably going to continue to have somewhat different foreign policy preferences from a lot of DC think tanks, uh, whether it's on trade issues, immigration, foreign policy. I mean, the, the Republican Party is shifting, and that's real, at the base of the party. And that debate is not going to go away. And so I would just say that the version of conservative nationalism we're seeing, we might see some different version 10 years from now. But one way or another, I think this form of conservative nationalism is probably here to stay. So, so let me actually pick up where you left off there, because as you, as you were talking, I, w- I was thinking about something. So if you, if you look at Trump, you can uh, see him as a herald of a shift in the way that the United States approaches the world, or you can see him as a very idiosyncratic president who came to power in an incredibly idiosyncratic election. Right. And so I guess the, the question I would ask, you know, if you look at where the rest of the Republican Party elites are. They're usually not in lockstep with the president on the foreign policy. They are on some issues, but on the issues where President Trump, on the issues that most motivate President Trump on trade, on alliances, um, there's been more daylight between him and, say, Republican leaders in the Senate. And so uh, do you have a prediction over where this sort of struggle within the GOP is is going? Are we going to see Trump 10 years from now as an aberration, and if we get another Republican president, he or she will be more like um, sort of the traditional internationalist approach within the Republican Party, or is the party going to follow the president because he has managed to tap into something within the American body politic that the rest of the party had missed? Yeah. So, look, I think that in all likelihood, as long as he's president, one of the things we've learned the last couple of years, as long as he's president, the vast majority of Republican voters are going to support him. And that's going to continue to have important political implications in Congress for most Senate and and House Republicans. 
Now, they do make it clear from time to time that they're not comfortable with, let's say, tariffs against U.S. allies, but he's, he's doing it anyway. And, and, and trade is probably one of the most contentious issues. On a lot of other issues, he just gets their support. So I think it's pretty much his, his game uh, in terms of Republican support in many ways for as long as he's president. Now, once Trump is no longer president, that's an interesting debate. If, if, um, what he has done is, I would say, to kind of blow the lid off. I mean, he has not always provided coherent answers, but he has asked questions that are actually very uh, basic questions, very forcefully posed, that a lot of people around the country ask. Why do we have alliances, for example? I happen to think it's in our interest as Americans to have allies, but he asks that question. Um, And so you can't really put that question back in the box. You have to be able to answer that convincingly to the satisfaction of voters. And if there's a certain percentage out there who say, Actually, I don't know why we do have all these forward-based commitments overseas. They're, it has now been legitimated to, to, to say that in a way that was not right. quite valid before Trump. So it's, it's been cracked open. So what I think you're going to have, in short, once Trump's gone on the Republican side, is I think you're going to have kind of a jump ball. It's going to be a wide-open debate between more non-interventionist forces on the one hand, conservative internationalists on the other, kind of hardline unilateralists as a third group, and it is going to be a serious debate because Trump has opened up possibilities that did not exist before. Okay, so let me, let me back up a little bit then and ask a couple of historical questions here. So one actually is kind of a philosophical question. And so you, you point out in the book that conservative internationalism, sorry, conservative nationalism should be seen uh, as a foil in some ways to liberal internationalism, which has been accepted as the dominant paradigm in American foreign policy for some time. But let me... Let me uh, pin you down a little bit on, on what exactly liberal internationalism is, in your view, because I think it would help sort of clarify the contrast. And so let me uh, offer two examples, and you could tell me which, which one better fits um, the point you're making. And so one is the example you mentioned, which is Woodrow Wilson, right, which is sort of the, the one-world approach to liberal internationalism, uh, as you described it. The second would be kind of the Harry Truman version, mm-hmm. right? And so this is sort of... A, a liberal approach to international affairs, but it's blended with highly realist instincts. And when people talk today about the liberal international order, I think they're usually referring to sort of the post-1945 version of liberal internationalism as opposed to the 1918 version. So when you're opposing liberal internationalism and conservative nationalism, what is the picture of liberal internationalism that you have in mind? Yeah, good. And, and by the way, I actually like Truman. I think Truman got it more right than wrong. So I, that's a version of American foreign policy that I've always appreciated. Um, and so the first wave of this was Wilson. The second was sort of FDR Truman, who I, I think in retrospect that was kind of a golden age for liberal internationalists, got more right than wrong. The third age of liberal internationalism was, I think, the post-Cold War version. So Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and even in, in some ways, of course, the Bush administration mm-hmm. agreed with the freedom agenda in the Middle East and with what you might call some Wilsonian assumptions uh, in, its, in its own way. So that third wave, in the end, was a little more frustrating. Uh, there were military interventions that, uh, as often as not, did not turn out as planned. Uh, free trade agreements that, in the end, a lot of Americans felt were, uh, were actually harmful um, you know, trends in terms of uh, losing manufacturing jobs to China, immigration patterns. So in in the end, all of this caught up with the establishment in 2016. And so at the time, in the 90s, it might have seemed as though, you know, what could possibly go wrong, right? 
It's, it's, but actually, the seeds were planted, I think, early in the 90s with the concepts like the end of history, to think that history's over. History never really did end. It, we've just had power politics internationally in different forms. And as China's risen, we've had to tackle that. So I think, it, in a way, 2016 was kind of a reality check that for a lot of Americans, the post-Cold War era did not go so well in terms of US foreign policy, in terms of domestic economic policies, in terms of a lot of different issue areas. So let, let me pick up on that then. So one of the questions I had in, in reading the book was, as you, as you mentioned, you make this point that in many ways the, the resurgence of conservative nationalism now is a response to the failures of American foreign policy during the post-Cold War era, during this period from, say, 1989 up until 2016. But let, let me put the question to you. you know, how, how bad was it really? Right? Yeah. And so... <laughs> Uh, you can point out, yes, there were negative impacts in terms of uh, globalization's effect on American manufacturing. There were wars that did not go well. There were lots of disappointments and so on and so forth. But you could also make the case that the post-Cold War era is pretty good in comparison to reasonable alternatives, right? Yeah. And so the, the, the one reasonable alternative, I think, that's, that's most pertinent is the alternative that John Mearsheimer brought up in his 1990 article, Why We Will All Soon Miss the Cold War. And, and this sort of raises the idea that the United States is going to withdraw from international politics after the Cold War as it did after World War I, and Europe and Asia are going to return to the hellish instability that had, that had prevailed there prior to World War II, uh, basically. And if you, think of it, if you think of that being the alternative and you look at you know, the persistence of American engagement and the, the role that it played, say, in stifling geopolitical revisionism, at least for a time in these theaters and, and promoting the spread of democracy, uh, or if you simply compare the 25 years after the Cold War to any other 25-year period in American foreign policy, is the record really that bad? Yeah. Uh, so what Trump was able to do, I think, is to zero in on the problems or the complaints. It's not to say that, they were, that the actual record was entirely bad. I mean, Clinton, Bush, Obama each had some real successes on foreign policy. And we, you know, we, we can go down the list. And I don't doubt their sincerity in their foreign policy agendas either. So um, at the time, particularly to people sympathetic to those administrations, the feeling may have been, you know, fundamentally we're trying to get it right, um, and so the mistakes are kind of secondary to the, you know, the primary story here is that we're doing something worthwhile. But that's not really the point. The point is I think that Trump was able to almost pull threads and to, to pull on all the potential sources of grievance or complaint. And people often criticize him for saying, you know, he's, he's encouraging this. But he couldn't have done it if they weren't there in the first place. I mean, there had to be some dissatisfaction with existing patterns of globalization for him to be able to win as many votes as he did on that issue in a Republican primary. That was shocking. That was a wake-up call. We used to think that the winning, the winning approach in a Republican primary was to be for free trade. Similarly, on foreign policy, we used to think it was just be sort of tough-minded and hawkish right, against liberal Democrats. And Trump actually did something very interesting. He sort of came at it from the other side and said, if anything, we're too uh, interventionist overseas militarily. So that was real. I mean, he tapped into something that was real. And, and I can tell you from having worked on different campaigns in that primary, it, <laughs> there was reality to it. So, um, you know, it's not, to de- it's not to denigrate previous administrations, but it's to say that um, there were valid complaints. I mean, people had their reasons. People had their reasons. And that's, that's where we're at now. What, what is interesting about Trump, though, is that because so much of the original... Um, 
campaign was a set of complaints, that's not the same thing as having a plan or a policy or a strategy. It wasn't really clear what his policy would be exactly. That's, that's now what we are seeing. So that, that's a whole other topic. So how, how well would you say the Trump administration has translated uh, conservative nationalist instincts into a conservative nationalist foreign policy or conservative nationalist grand strategy? Right. So uh, there's been challenges from the start. One is that there was never, I mean, just in terms of personnel, there, never, there wasn't really a set of, a cadre. There wasn't a set of personnel kind of ready to go, as would normally be the case with a winning presidential candidate. So that's been a challenge, I think, probably from his point of view and his supporters' point of view, is, you know, uh, who, who can actually implement this other than the president himself? Uh, and there's some, there have been some good people in there, but it's, there, there has been an unusual degree of challenge when it comes to personnel. Um, what he's done, I think, in practice is to pursue a, an approach. He's not particularly ideological at all. I think that's clear. So what he's done is to say, you know, I'm going to apply pressure to different countries, and whether they're allies or whether they're adversaries, that's one of the things that's interesting about him. I would say it's a set of pressure campaigns. I'm going to try to find leverage wherever I can. And he's willing to locate leverage in ways that some presidents wouldn't. He's willing to use tariffs on allies, which some presidents wouldn't. And, and similarly, he zeroes in on economic complaints, not just security ones. So it's a set of pressure campaigns where he's willing to, to escalate and then de-escalate up and down the ladder in ways that are quite unpredictable. But he's always leaving open the option to negotiate in the end, with the exception of ISIS. But he's willing to talk to almost anybody. He's also willing to pressure almost anybody. So these are all distinctive qualities to him. Um, that's his approach. It, you could imagine some other conservative nationalist who would follow a different one. But that's Trump. So I think from the point of view of his kind of core supporters, he's doing what he said he would do. I mean, the, this is one of the ways in which he and his critics talk past each other. The criticism, for example, is in Washington, he's disruptive. Well, no kidding. <laughs> of course he's disruptive. He promised to be disruptive, and he is disruptive. So, from the, again, from the point of view of whatever it is, 40% in the country, watching him saying, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I had in mind. He's doing what I asked. He's doing what I expected. So we're, just, we're almost talking past each other, I think, in D.C. about what would have to be the criteria for success or failure. So, so let me keep going on this thread because I think it's really interesting. And so one, one question that comes to mind has to do with a point that you make in the book, which is that sort of the ideational struggle uh, for the soul of American foreign policy is not just between liberal internationalism and conservative nationalism. It's also between nationalist and internationalist elements within sort of the body of conservative right, thought. Right. And so you, you make the argument, which is, you know, eminently plausible and right, I think, that the most successful Republican presidents have struck the right balance between nationalist and internationalist inclinations. Yeah. And so how would you rate the Trump administration in terms of striking that balance? Right. So, uh, so just as a side thought, I would say pre- my, my favorite presidents historically, you know, Teddy Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, I think they did a good job. Uh, and I talk about that in the book. I think with Trump, I mean, obviously, you know, he's, he's very popular among Republican voters. With, with opinion leaders, it's more controversial. There's always going to be a percentage of conservative opinion leaders who just aren't on board. And so it creates the impression that there's tremendous internal debate, when in reality, maybe 90% of Republican voters support him. Um, so, you know, there's something about his style and his manner and his policy choices that is particularly controversial at the elite level, right, which makes it hard. I mean, you're just, this is not an administration that's ever going to be popular with the country's 
you know, postgraduate urban chattering classes. It just isn't, okay? even among a certain percentage of Republicans. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of uniting Republican Party support, I mean, he's basically got it. He's basically got it. Uh, he's, never really, he's never really been able to go beyond that low 40s percentage. He's never, you know, Democrats have no use for him. And independents, it's a mixed bag. Uh, but in terms of, but at the same time, he never really goes down. I mean, it's just been extraordinarily stable. So he has a coalition. It's very steady. Uh, he may very well be reelected with that coalition. He's got a small base, but it's quite committed yeah, to it. Right, right. So um, say, let's talk a little bit more about the politics of conservative nationalism today. And so one of the points that you alluded to in your remarks and, and something that's developed at, at length in the book is the idea that Trump essentially uh, shattered the existing Republican balance of power on, on foreign policy. And he assembled a coalition that was either new or old, depending on how, how you look at it. So maybe you could say a little bit more about the politics of, of Trump's foreign policy. So what, what are, who are the elements within the Republican coalition that he most appeals to? And how, how stable is this coalition over, over time? Does, does this represent sort of a, a new dominant coalition within the Republican Party, or are there fissures there that might become more pronounced as time goes on? Well, it's interesting. So if you think about in Congress... Uh, there's a distribution, right? You have, let's say, a Rand Paul on the one end of the spectrum, who's clearly more non-interventionist. Uh, Rand Paul's view as a libertarian would be, um, you know, we should probably be doing less in the Middle East than we are now, spend less on defense, if anything, and certainly stay out of conflict, any new military conflicts. Rand Paul's take on Trump, if you notice, is quite positive. He says, I support the president, I like what he's doing. Um, and then he, from time to time, make suggestions or criticisms, okay? On the other end of the spectrum, Lindsey Graham. He would be on the very other end of the spectrum. Lindsey Graham would be more of a kind of uh, Bush-McCain right, type of Republican who's, who's really quite hawkish, would like to see hardline policies on Iran, on North Korea, on Russia, you name it. High levels of defense spending. Lindsey Graham similarly says, I support President Trump. I think he's basically got it right. Um, he's better than he gets credit for. Uh, at the same time, I will tell him when I think he's mistaken on specific issues, right? So Lindsey Graham will be outspoken on, on Iran and say, here's what I think we should do. But that's a pretty broad coalition. If you're able to say most of the time that you've got Ryan Paul, Lindsey Graham, and everybody in the middle on the Republican side saying that they consider themselves Trump supporters, that's, that's, that's pretty stable, actually. Uh, now, what happens next? I, I, I would say you know, long-term, whatever Republican president comes next after Trump um, will make a new coalition and will have a different personality and may have some different policy priorities. So they will have to uh, start over again. Um, and there will be an opportunity for them to do so. And so it would look a little different, probably. Well, let, me, let me push a little bit more on this, since you mentioned Iran, um, because the way that you described uh, sort of the... Um, uh, this, this, the uh, sympathy that both Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul have for the president reminds me of sort of the, the Walter Russell Mead uh, definition mm -hmm. of sort of the Jacksonian and the Jeffersonian schools, right? Jacksonians are kind of the classic realist talks. Uh, Jeffersonians are sort of the tend-to-your-own-garden tend mm -hmm. types. And, and clearly, uh, both of those groups in the Republican Party support the president. But what I'm curious about is... Does Trump have a unique ability to unite them, 
or is there more, simply more ideological sympathy between those groups than we might imagine? Because that, that seems to be crucial to determining whether this will outlast Trump. And the reason this is relevant to Iran is that you can, you can see some of the cracks in that coalition opening up over Iran, where I imagine sort of the Tom Cottons of the world are relatively displeased that the president has not responded to Iranian provocations in, in more forceful fashion, even if he won't say so publicly. And whereas Rand Paul, I'm sure, is actually quite pleased with, with the president's right. restraint in the face of Iranian provocations. And so it, it is a broad coalition, but how stable is it really? Yeah. Right. So it's stable as long as Trump is president. Um, and there are some natural differences in it. And, and once he's gone, those cracks could certainly come open again, either if Republicans in our opposition or if there's some new leader who pulls together a different kind of coalition. Trump is probably the most Jacksonian president since Andrew Jackson. <laughs> he may be more Jacksonian than Andrew, Andrew Jackson himself. So that made him very unusual, right? Um, and obviously his support comes primarily not on foreign policy, but on even more basic questions of party identity, um, voters who just identify with him and his style personally. I mean, that is one wing of the Republican Party that just likes him. And so that is going to go beyond specific policy choices, and it's going to tend to encourage a deference on, on a range of policy choices. Um, and that's part of what gives it its stability. But I actually don't think that's so unique to him. I mean, he's an unusual personality to have in the presidency. But if you think back to the Obama years, if Obama decided to either intervene in Syria or not to intervene in Syria, you would get a rally effect from Democrats either way. Democrats tended to think, you know, Obama was their guy. This is our guy. His heart's in the right place. He has our best interests at heart, and we trust that whatever decision he makes will be the right one. That is actually how a lot of Americans outside of D.C. approach foreign policy issues on either side of the aisle. So that's, that's not so unusual. So one of the really interesting things about the Trump era is this massive cleavage that's opened up around the idea of nationalism. And nationalism is, of course, at, at the heart of this book. And you, you make the point that uh, nationalism in a lot of forms is very healthy. I mean, you can't have a functioning foreign policy. You can't have a functioning nation without nationalism. And so why, why do you think it is that mentions of the word nationalism provoke such a strong and often negative response these days? And what is it that um, critics of, uh, say, the president when he identifies himself as a nationalist, what are they missing about that concept. Yeah, well, this is, this is a major motivator for me. So I think um, often when people use the word nationalism, particularly academics, they, they, they mean the 1930s version. They mean Nazi Germany uh, and, you know, hyper-aggressive, hyper fascistic, authoritarian, maybe even genocidal. And that creates this intense comparison over and over again to that period. But, and, and, of course, there are versions of nationalism that are, that are really that awful, and that's real. Um, but, you know, again, in the American case, I mean, America is not any other country. So the particular version of nationalism we have in the United States doesn't look exactly like some of these other countries. So the, the, the version in the U.S., I, I think, historically, has been a civic nationalism that is democratic, small-d democratic. Um, and it actually has, has often been quite healthy. It's a little bit like... Um, if you have a, a two-story house where the internationalists are on the second floor reminding you they need to be out there, being, and the, the nationalists are on the first floor saying, you have to tend to the first floor of this house. You cannot forget the physical reality of the first floor. And I think in a way that's sort of what voters have been saying lately, is don't forget us. Don't forget immediate, local, and national needs. We can talk about Syria. We can talk about Japan. But these are immediate needs. 
So that's a form of nationalism. You know, it's often said that America is an idea, but it's also an actual place. It's a physical country with borders and with autonomy and with citizens whose interests are fundamental. So your foreign policy has to be based on that recognition. So I think in that sense, nationalism just starts from that recognition that you know, America is, is actually a nation state. And that is not a, there's, there's nothing sinister about that, just the opposite. It's a form of, it's a form of patriotism or love of country. Uh, you're, the interests of US citizens are not necessarily identical with universal abstractions. You have to look after your own citizens. So uh, one of the really fresh and uh, thought-provoking aspects of this book is uh, your appraisal of Trump's foreign policy, not just in terms of situating it within the historical tradition, but also sort of making sense of, of what you think are the positive aspects of it, and then also some of the weaknesses in, mm-hmm. in Trump's foreign policy. So to kind of bring us back toward the present, what, what would you say are the chief strengths of the president's foreign policy or the things that he's gotten right? And what are the chief weaknesses or the things that he's gotten wrong? Okay, so I think strengths, I, I actually like a number of these pressure campaigns. I think the devil's in the details, but I think the basic concept of applying pressure to China or pressure to Iran or, or, or North Korea is sound. And then you have to get it right, obviously. Um, I, like, I actually like that he is willing to ask unconventional questions. I mean, it's not that he always has the answers, but he's willing to do that. He's willing to, to apply leverage to what apparently he thinks are U.S. national interests. And after all, the role of the United States president is not the same as the pope. I mean, a United States president is there to represent, you, again, U.S. interests. I mean, that's really the bottom line. So I don't see the U.S. president as a kind of transcendental figure who's there to sort of rise above all national differences and, and somehow bring everybody together. That is actually not his job. So I think he gets that. <laughs> um, weaknesses, there are some, for sure. And so the management style is a mixed bag. I mean, there, it's, it's, you, know, you, you cannot run U.S. foreign policy by yourself. You, you can't run it in a way. That, it has to be coordinated. You have to, you have to appreciate that you have a national security foreign policy bureaucracy with different instruments and tools and personnel that, that need to be coordinated toward a given end, whatever your agenda is, even if it's a nationalist agenda. So you have, in order to have a successful resolution of negotiations with other countries, that has to be well-coordinated and well-informed. So that's sometimes been a challenge. Um, so it's a mixed bag. I think his strengths and his weaknesses are both pronounced, which makes, him hard, which makes it sometimes hard for people to get their head around it because he has, he has real strengths and he has real weaknesses when it comes to foreign policy. And one, one of the most polarizing uh, aspects of his foreign policy, I would say, and you can tell me whether you agree with this, is the approach to allies in, yeah. in particular. And, and so um, one of the critiques you'll often hear is that, yes, the president has it right in the sense that uh, U.S. alliances do need to be rebalanced in terms of sort of the distribution of burdens and benefits but the president goes about it in a counterproductive manner. And so to to drill down on that particular issue, which really does seem to incite a lot of criticism, uh, how is is he striking the balance appropriately, in your view, on on U.S. alliances? So, look, I think there's a a long-term concern, which I have, and actually it goes back to the Obama years, which is if we are constantly giving allies the impression that we might walk away, eventually you will pay a price for that. And, And... um, Trump is more uh, direct about it in a way. I mean, he's quite, he can be quite, <laughs> quite uh, you know, blunt 
uh, in a way that Obama was not. But after all, it was Obama that said, I hate free riders. Yep. I think Trump would, would definitely second that. So if you, if you have presidents who see allies as free riders, at a certain point, allies start to look around for other options. Uh, they, and they do have other options. I mean, they might end up responding in ways that you don't like that aren't in American interest. They can reach out and f make new arrangements. Worst case scenario, they can cozy up to regimes you don't like very much. Um, so it's a concern. It is absolutely a concern, and, and I talk about that in the book as well. I think it's fair to ask allies to do more. I mean, the Germans in particular, it is frustrating to watch, having made these commitments to 2% spending in 2014, and lately they've just clarified that they're just not going to do it. So that, I think, is frustrating for, for any American. But um, having said that, there are, there are more or less skillful ways of communicating those concerns. And this question comes in two parts, of course, so I'm going to try to sneak another one in there. Uh, first, what should we expect from a second Trump term? And so one of the sort of the through lines in this administration has been the struggle in some cases between the president and his own advisors over the nature of, of U.S. foreign policy. And so should we expect the president to move more in a conservative nationalist direction, less yeah. in a conservative, so on and so forth? And then the, the second part of that question is what are the aspects of Trump's foreign policy that might endure even if he's defeated in 2020? Right. So even under a Democratic administration. Right. So it's t the second term is tough. I'm not, I am actually not even convinced that the president himself knows exactly what a second-term foreign policy would look like. I think we have a pretty good sense of what the next year will look like. He's going to want to run on for re-election saying, I'm winding down the war in Afghanistan, Right. I've renegotiated trade agreements with a number of allies. I've got some kind of trade ceasefire with China. So you would think that there'd be some agreement with China. Um, you know, I've rolled back ISIS. Yeah, that, you know, that's kind of the re-election campaign. I've stayed out of trouble, no new wars, right? Second term, I, I think it's wide open. I mean, I'm not sure anybody knows. Um, and I, I think, truthfully, I'm not sure the White House knows. Uh, so it could go in a lot of different directions. There could be events that occur. So far, we haven't had full-blown military crises. We haven't had a 9-11. We haven't had a Korean War. We haven't had, you know, the kind of crisis that could reshape the administration's foreign policy. Historically, it's often true that a president ends up going in a very different direction because of external events and pressures. So that's a possibility. Um, now, what will outlast him? I actually think possibly several things, to tell you the truth. So Elizabeth Warren, let's say at the moment, maybe is even the front-runner for the Democrats. Uh, and as different as she is on Trump on a lot of foreign policy issues and domestic, and as different stylistically, there are certain things that could outlast Trump. One is a more hard line on China mm -hmm. economically, a growing sense that China is, is really this number one long-term challenge. That seems to be an area where he set the agenda and changed the conversation. So Democrats don't agree with the specifics, but the fundamentals actually may last. Another is that there needs to be increased burden sharing. And the tone... Uh, could be quite different, but I mean, I imagine a President Warren is not going to increase defense spending. Probably the opposite. So if she's going to cut defense, if she wants to promote liberal world order, but at the same time cut defense spending, how do you square that circle? You're going to have to insist that U.S. allies spend more. Well, that's what Trump's trying to do. Um, the third would be globalization and free trade. I mean, it, she doesn't strike me as a big fan. <laughs> So that's another possibility is you have, uh, you have certain trends, more protectionism, more skepticism of free trade at the highest level. Um, those, are just, those are just a few examples.
Thanks for listening to the AEI Events Podcast. You can find new episodes each week on your favorite podcast apps. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you next week.